Good morning. Today we're going to read Ezra 7, 1 through 10, and then verses 27 and 28. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple of, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Jerusalem. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king, to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors, and before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. This is the very word of God. Good morning, Crossdown Church. As we've sang this morning and we've seen throughout this book, one of the main themes of the book of Ezra is the faithfulness of God to his covenant with his people and to his promises to return them from exile to the land, to the true covenant worship of him in the temple where he made his presence known and to the true knowledge and practice of the law. Undergirding this theme throughout the book is the providence of God in fulfilling this quest. And the chapter we are looking at today, and we're looking at the whole chapter, not just the verses we read. This chapter stands as a hinge in the story as we witness God's faithfulness to his covenant we see the man he raises to fulfill his promise and the need to be faithful to keep the word of God. It is in this vein that our chapter and our story kicks off. It's been almost 60 years since the events Pastor Ben taught us about last chapter, 57 years to be exact. The year is now 458 B.C. Between the events of last week's sermon and today's, the whole book of Esther took place. King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, who married Esther, is no more. We are now in the reign of his son, King Artaxerxes. The Israelites had been exiled in two waves into Babylon, beginning 160 years earlier. In the year 612 BC, the first wave went into exile, and then there was a disaster of the year 586 B.C. when the temple that Solomon had built was destroyed. 
the place where God had made his presence known among his people was no more. Then God worked in the heart of King Cyrus to decree the return of the first waves of the Israelites from exile 80 years before this chapter's events. In the year 538 BC, as we saw earlier in Ezra, they started to rebuild the temple, but then stopped under opposition that we saw in chapter 4. They continued the work in chapter 5 by the decree of King Darius, and they finished the temple in chapter 6, and they celebrated the Passover in the year 516 BC. That was exactly seven years after the first temple was destroyed. And this should bring to our mind the prophecy of Jeremiah that God would begin to return his people from exile after 70 years. God was faithful to his promises to his people. In fact, he has never been found faithless to any of his promises. In today's passage, the people have now been back in the land nearly as long as they had been in exile, those same people. The temple had been rebuilt, but not fully beautified. The first wave of returned Jews had settled back in the land for nearly six decades by this time. We don't know much about this intervening period, but it seems that there was no particular leader on this scene to guide the people to the true covenant worship of God and to keeping his statutes. We know of these transgressions later in Ezra and also in Nehemiah, as we hear that the people had faltered in their worship, had intermarried with the people of the land, and taken on some of their idolatrous customs. At the same time, there was still a cohort of people living back in Persian lands, particularly in Babylon, where many had prospered, having heeded Jeremiah's prophecy to seek the welfare of the city that they were in, but maybe having glanced over the other prophecies, such as in Zechariah, telling them to flee the land of the north and escape to Zion. And that maybe that's why they did not return with the first exile. History often, often tells us of such times of national confusion, of tragedy, of distress, where there does not seem to be a leader, one who can guide the people and the nation to a safe haven, to victory over its enemies, to prosperity, or maybe out of the slums of its own degraded practices. And the study of history reveals that every now and then, someone rises to lead the people into renewal and reform, into purity, into victory, into prosperity. Every now and then, there comes on the scene a George Washington or a Winston Churchill, a Moses or an Ezra. It's in light of this that the protagonist of this chapter finally, of this entire book, actually, finally after six chapters, shows up on the scene. You might have been wondering, the book is called Ezra, but we have never heard of him so far. And we're about 60% into this book. And in this aspect, the book is unique. Most other prophetic books in the Old Testament introduce the prophet immediately at the beginning. We see that in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and many of the other prophetic books. But Ezra shows up 57 years after the events of chapter 6, as we said before, around the year 458 BC. The context is set for the rest of this story. Now let's look at the man. Who was this Ezra? His name means the Lord has helped. In 1 Samuel 7:12, when God defeats the Philistines who were attacking Israel, Samuel sets a stone of remembrance and he calls it Ebenezer. 
which means till now has the Lord helped us. You might know this word since we sing it in the hymn, uh, Come thou fount of every blessing, as we say, Here I raise my Ebenezer, here by thy great help I've come. The suffix Ezer means help, and you can see the theme between the name of Ezra and Ebenezer, that God's providential help has been on clear display in the history of the nation, and especially in this chapter. This Ezra was a man who was likely born, raised, and lived his entire life in exile in Babylon. He had never been to Jerusalem. But he probably heard the stories and also the prophecies. It seems he had prospered to a certain degree and achieved a high position like Daniel and Nehemiah, and he had become well-educated and had direct access to the king, and he had favor in his sight so he can speak to him directly. We know from this chapter that he was also a scribe, which means he was a serious student and a keeper of the revelation, committed to learning and preserving the law of God. By the time of Jesus, there were many scribes who had degenerated from this practice of keeping and administering the law. And that is very unfortunate because from the study of history, we know that Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi were the last books chronologically of the Old Testament, and the people who returned to the land had difficulty finding their new identity within this context that they had not been used to since they were exiled and they had not learned firsthand all the statutes. The efforts of those people eventually led to the birth of scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees, many of whom unfortunately missed the spirit of the law. But Jesus himself, whom they opposed, learned the law, fulfilled it, and taught his disciples and us how we should walk before him in a new covenant. Ezra was not the type of scribe that Jesus encountered. In fact, he was a priest, and we are here given a short genealogy, unlike many of the others we encounter in the Word of God, but we're given a short genealogy without uh, many difficult names for us to pronounce. But it still contains some very important names. Some of them are very obscure to us, but a few of them are worth mentioning. Zadok, the priest, whom Handel wrote a full piece of music on, had helped King David during his son Absalom's revolt and later anointed Solomon himself king and was there at his coronation. Another important name is Aaron, the first high priest of the people of God. And all of the people that are mentioned there were priests of Israel. So another important name, or most of them were, another important name, I already mentioned Aaron, So according to the Old Covenant and this genealogy of names, our protagonist has the birthright to be one of the high priests of the people of God. He had, in fact, been appointed by Artaxerxes to be in his court as a sort of secretary of religious affairs and institutions and was now being commissioned by the same king to return to Jerusalem and be a priest over the people and teach them the law of God. Having studied the law of Moses, he was particularly positioned to know the law, to establish it in the land, to interpret it, and introduce reforms. Now, why were reforms needed? During the 57 years, as I mentioned, since they celebrated the Passover in chapter 6, the exiles who had returned had intermingled with the people of the land, and they had, even some of the leaders married some of the women of the land, and as we know in chapter 9, later in this, uh, in this book. And by doing that, they had entered into adulterous relationships, things that were forbidden by God. And in doing so, they adulterated the worship of God as well. 
It was true back then as it is true today, which is part and parcel of human nature in every part of human history, regardless of the age that people live in, that those who want acceptance by the surrounding culture will eventually compromise. In an effort to be overtly sensitive, not just sensitive, overtly sensitive, truth is bent and reshaped in a way that becomes utterly unrecognizable. That happened in Babylon, that happened in Jerusalem, that happened in Samaria, and it is happening in today's any name the city you want. Truly, without a guidance, a people falls, as we know from Proverbs eleven fourteen. Without a shepherd, the sheep go astray. Without a discipler, the issue is not that the people will not be discipled at all, but they will be discipled by what is around them. And the surrounding culture is a very efficient discipler. It's in light of this that our passage directs us to examine the faithfulness of Ezra, the man of God. He was truly a Levite, and so according to the law, he could be set apart for the ministry of the law in the temple. He was a scribe, a student, and a keeper of the revelation of God, committed to preserving the law of God. But genealogy alone is not sufficient. It is not sufficient for our faithfulness to God. If you look at verse 10, we see that Ezra made a conscious decision to study the law of God. It says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it, to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. He did not do it for mere intellectual curiosity, nor for personal enlightenment, nor to be elevated above the people of the land and separate from them. But he had applied his heart to the understanding of the law, and that is to do it. You see, study without practice is sterile. When one sets his heart on the law of God, he sets his whole mind on understanding it and his whole being on practicing it. But the heart needs preparation through the commitment of our intention. And verse 10 tells us he had intentionally set or fixed his heart to the following three practices. Number one is to study the law of the Lord. This means he spent time, effort, and possibly finances to search, learn, and examine the Pentateuch, the law of Moses that was available to him. No time was wasted on matters of mindless knowledge. Psalm 1 says, His delight was in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditated day and night. This should remind us of the child Jesus, who at the age of 12 was able to argue and present theological cases before the teachers of the law. And that is because the truly human Jesus, in his human nature, from his childhood, had committed himself to know the things of God. So I ask you today, are you committed to study the word of God? Have you set your heart on it? Even if you don't feel like it, are you commanding your soul like the psalmist does to run after the knowledge of God? Pastor Ben read, read verses 89 to 96 from Psalm 119. Verse 97 says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. In another place in, chapter, in, in Psalm 119, verse 15 it's, it says, it is, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day long. 
So do you find him worthy like the psalmist does of such devotion? I love when we share the word of God with one another. We encourage one another and rejoice in what God is instructing us through his gospel. And I love when we submit our lives to the word as it transforms us more into the likeness of Christ. So Ezra set his heart to study the law of God. The second thing he set his heart on is to do the law, to observe it by obeying it, by obeying the God who had given the law and by keeping his decrees that he had commanded. Ezra knew that the only true theology is applied theology. Or as we've heard it said before from this pulpit, all theology is practical. You see, once we know the truth and what is the right thing to do, our conscience should oblige us to do it. Otherwise, we would be sinning. James 4.17 says, Whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. James also says in chapter 1, verse 22, that we ought to be doers, not just hearers of the word. James's brother, a man named Jesus, taught us in John 13, 17, that if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Ezra did not find it a burden to obey God and to do what he had commanded. On the other hand, he was burdened by the fact that people did not know or obey the law. So brother and sister, do you feel it burdensome to obey what God has commanded? Do your preferences and opinions trump the clear teachings and instructions of the word of God? Do you delight in obeying him out of sheer joy and thanksgiving? for who he is as our eternal, holy, awesome, magnificent God, and for what Christ has done as our Savior. Can you tell him, like the psalmist does, your statutes are my delight, not just to know them, but to do them. So let us stir one another to obedience and good deeds. We do not obey him to gain favor. We obey him because he first loved us, and to love him is to do what he has commanded. The third thing Ezra set his heart on, was to teach the statutes and rules in Israel. In Nehemiah 8, chapter 8, verse 8, we learn that Ezra read the law to the people and explained it. This is is what faithful gospel ministry looks like. It is not only reading the word, but explaining it so that people can understand and obey, even those who do not know it. This was the mark of a true disciple, It was making disciples. He learned, he did, and then he taught others to do likewise. A true disciple does not hoard that knowledge, does not merely taste and see, but a disciple who has tasted and seen the goodness of God overflows with a desire to tell others what God has done, what he has commanded, exhorting them to obey all his commands. Are you seeing the foreshadowing of the Great Commission in these words. God's plan did not change. It has always been for his people to learn his gospel well, to obey him, and then to to go tell others to do likewise. See, in my work, I find so much joy as I'm teaching students and residents and fellows, and I see how with time they grow, they gain knowledge, and they learn how to do things the way I taught them. 
and then they go and do likewise. And even more joyful is to see them go search for knowledge and then teach others how to do things and others learn from them. The great thing about it is that they don't need me anymore. They can go and do likewise, and then I can go teach another group to do the same thing. This is called multiplication. That's how we do the things of God. We learn, we obey, and then we tell others to do likewise. Imagine if each and every one of us would do this in our homes, in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, among our circles of friends. Does it sound like a great commission, what we are seeing here, Ezra doing? Remember the words of Christ. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. That is what discipleship is, and this is what Ezra is doing here. And believers, what transformation would take place if the people of God were to be faithful and are part of the covenant? Ezra's faithfulness to God was striking and was clear in his inner being and in his outward practice as well. He lived with integrity. He loved God with his mind, soul, and strength, his whole being. He did not loosen his covenantal relationship with God, nor did he weaken his faithfulness to him to gain favor, to achieve a position, or to blend in among those around him. Like Joseph in Egypt, who didn't have a very good time. Daniel in Babylon, who also did not have a very good time among the lions, probably, when he first came down. And Nehemiah in Susa, they honored the Lord at all times, despite opposition, and they did not falter in his obedience. And all this was made possible by the grace of God on his people. And like the name of Ezra means, the Lord was faithful in helping him. In fact, if we look at verses 6, 9, and 28, we will see a clear demonstration of God's faithfulness toward his covenant people and Ezra. Three times God's providence is mentioned. In verse 6, the king granted him All that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. We will look more at the king shortly, but there is no confusion here. Just like we saw in chapter 6, verse 14 in the sermon from last week, that the decree was that of God. Our Lord's favor was behind all these events. In verse 9, Ezra takes the journey from Babylon to Jerusalem and arrives relatively quickly and without any issues, for the good hand of his God was on him. More details on this journey will be coming in the next chapter. But Babylon would be located about 60 miles south of Baghdad in Iraq today, or Iraq. A direct journey from Babylon west to Jerusalem would have been somewhere around 600 miles. But Ezra's journey would have typically taken him north through Iraq, west through northern Syria, down through the coast of Lebanon to Jerusalem, allowing them to stay around paths of water where there's rivers and also bypassing the mountains that might have had snow on them. The journey took about four months at the rate of about 10 miles a day, and God was faithful to bring Ezra and the people that were about maybe 2,000 with him safely on this journey to Jerusalem in the year 458 B.C. So we see that God was also faithful on the journey. And then in verse 28, Ezra praises God for his favor as he acknowledges that the hand of the Lord, my God, was on me. Ezra knew fully well that all his scribing and meditating and studying and doing and teaching and asking and journeying, although they are great feats in and of themselves, they were only the manifestation 
of God's providence and the work of his faithfulness. He did not boast. We don't hear him boast in this chapter. All that he did and all that he had was from the good hand of his Lord. It is good for us to give praise to the Lord in all things, especially in our achievements. Believer, there's nothing you and I have achieved, studied, built, or labored for that is not without the good favor of our good God. Our value is not in our achievements. It is in living by grace, by the merits of Jesus Christ, the faithful one. And indeed, God's gracious faithfulness is behind all these events. Do you believe that God is able to put thoughts and decisions in people's minds, including kings? He doesn't have to do what the Inception movie does of building a dream within a dream. He, do you believe that he can actually put a thought in the heart of the king, in the mind of his children? If you remember Daryl's sermon from chapters 1 and 2, he had stirred both the spirit of King Cyrus and the spirit of the Jewish leaders to initiate the return from exile. And Pastor Daryl was trying to stir in your minds this awe of God working in people's hearts and minds. And a lot of you were not paying attention to that. Last week, we did not plan this, but in my pastoral prayer and in Ben's sermon, we both mentioned Proverbs 21.1, which says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it whatever he will. In the book of Exodus, God stirred Pharaoh's heart by hardening it so that he would detain the people, so that the people of the land would know that there is a God in the land. He stirred Nebuchadnezzar's heart to take the people into exile as judgment. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to initiate the return. And he is stirring the heart of Artaxerxes here and the heart of Ezra to continue the process of rebuilding Jerusalem and very importantly to purify the land to reestablish the worship of God and the teaching of the law. This is the God we worship, a God who works in the heart of kings and of people, of enemies and of his own church. God's hand of favor prepared the way for all of this, for Artaxerxes to initiate a decree of return, for him to choose Ezra to lead it, for him to issue the typical Persian threat that anyone who opposes you will be dealt with very harshly and severely, for him to grant Ezra latitude and expenses, for his seven counselors and mighty officers, as Ezra mentions, to all be on board with his plan, for them to give free gifts, expensive gifts, three and a half tons of silver and many other things to the temple and also expensive provisions for the road. For the king to decree that even the people of the land can give freely to Ezra to take to Jerusalem. For Artaxerxes to decree that priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and temple servants would return to Jerusalem, all those who were needed for orderly practice of covenant worship in the temple. For him to order Ezra to present sacrifices according to the law of Moses. And very importantly, for him to ordain Ezra to instruct the people with all diligence in the matters of the law of God. God basically stirred Artaxerxes' heart to make the law of God the law of the land. All the land beyond the river. He even tells Ezra 
in verse 25, to teach it to even those who do not know it. This is God stirring the heart of a pagan king to teach the gospel of God, the word of God, to people who do not know it. Brothers and sisters, do you see the sovereignty of God in this? We're seeing here the fulfillment of prophecies by Haggai, Zechariah, Jeremiah, and Isaiah. And the return of the people, the rebuilding of the temple, and the teaching of the law. We also remember that God's plan from the beginning included proclaiming his name and his knowledge and his love to those who do not yet know him. That was the purpose of Israel, so that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. What the people had longed for and wept for, as we learned from Jeremiah, at the rivers of Babylon is now being fulfilled through a pagan king. We see the reestablishment of this Israeli theocracy where priests, judges, and magistrates that the king tells Ezra to appoint are ordained to reestablish the covenant community under the covenant God and his law. It is true that Artaxerxes might be doing it for his own reasons. It is true a peaceable Jerusalem would be a very good buffer between Persia and Egypt that was always threatening to revolt and would actually revolt within a couple years. It is true Artaxerxes would benefit from friends in Jerusalem along the way he would take down to Egypt to quell that resistance. It is true he had a policy of allowing the people that were conquered to semi-autonomously self-govern. It is true he wanted conquered peoples to pray for their own gods for his benefit and the benefit of the sons of the king and for his well-being. But you see, folks, God specializes, just like he specializes in resurrecting and making dead people live, he specializes in turning what people intend for their own ends and sometimes even for evil to his own glorious purposes for his name's sake. And as I study Artaxerxes, I'm a bit amused by how he refers to God. On one hand, he calls himself king of kings, which was a common practice of Persian kings to name themselves like that since they would have conquered many other kings, so they had authority over kings. But on the other hand, he refers to God in, the, in different ways, but th- this theme recurring in how he refers to God. The God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. The God that is in Jerusalem. Your God that is in Jerusalem, the God of Jerusalem. Folks, our God made the world and everything in it. He is not a local deity. He is not a God of that city only. Artaxerxes may have thought of him that way, but Jerusalem was not his real dwelling place. He does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, for he himself gives to all mankind every single day life and breath and everything. He is the God of heaven and earth. That is the God we worship. We don't worship the God of Oklahoma City or for Jerusalem or the God of the United States or the God of any other nation. We worship the God who made everything, the world and everything in it. That is the God we worship. That is the faithful God who has been faithful to his promises from beginning, and he is faithful to you and me today, and he will be faithful to the end. He never reneges on a promise. But this God made his presence known among his people at the temple. But he has made his presence known 
in an even more unique way. I want to draw your attention to what the king says to Ezra in verse 25. He tells him, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand. It was probably fascinating to the king and to many people of old that the law of God had been revealed in such a way that it was written down so that the people can read it, learn it, remember it, obey it, and teach it. That is the magnificence of the revealed word of God, the God of heaven that we worship, and that he has given us his word in writing. This is the full revelation. This is the whole counsel of God that we have in our hands. It is not customs or practices or traditions that we follow, but a written word that has been given to us, preserved from one generation to another by the power of the Holy Spirit, inerrant, God-breathed, and profitable until the day he comes. Ezra knew all of this, and that's why we see him exalt in the name of God in verse 27, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. He recognized that God put this in the heart of the king, and he he gave Ezra his favor, his chesed, his steadfast love that he keeps from one generation to another, to this thousand generation, for the hand of the sovereign Lord was on him. Brothers and sisters, we sang about faithfulness this morning. We know God has been faithful to us. We see that faithfulness is one of the main themes of this book. God is faithful to the covenant he has made with his people. He is as faithful as he is holy. He does not change. This means his faithfulness does not falter. He had made a dwelling place for his name among his people. He had judged them and chastised them for disobeying him. He had made them go into exile, but not without hope. He made a promise to return them from exile and to make his dwelling place among his people Once again, he raised a man of faithfulness to lead them. He fulfilled his promise of returning them and rebuilding the temple. The establishment of the second temple was very important. Pastor and theologian Phil Riken says it meant the covenant community would resume covenant worship of the covenant God in the covenant city. The teaching of the law that by Ezra would be an act of purification of the land and of reformation, returning the people to covenant living and covenant practice. While Ezra could trace his lineage back to Aaron, his genealogy alone was not sufficient. He had set his heart on studying the word of God, on obeying it, and on teaching it. He was both called and equipped to serve as Israel's priest. He had the will and the conviction to lead. He also had a heart for holiness. And the people followed his practice, as we know later on, as they saw his heart and they repented from their sin. Ezra was considered by the rabbis as second only to Moses in regards to his knowledge and teaching of the law. Friends, unlike the people at the time of Moses and Ezra, we have not come to a mountain, we have not come to a tent, we have not come to a temple made of stone. Like them, you and I were exiled from the presence of God, strangers, alienated from a covenant with him. But we have seen the fulfillment of God's greater promise, that one day 
he would raise a king that would reign in righteousness, a prophet who would proclaim freedom, a priest who would minister forever, a child who would be born, a servant who would suffer, a lamb who would be slain. The first temple is no more. The second temple is no more. And there will be no more temple. There is no temple in heaven, in the new city, in the new Jerusalem, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, as we learn from Revelation 21:22. If you're seeking to rebuild another temple, you are on the wrong path. Jesus Christ is our temple. And this Lamb, Jesus, is also our eternal high priest. He is greater than Moses, and he is greater than Ezra. He has come after long wait and much expectation to set the people free. He has put an end to our exile. He has given us a new covenant with his blood. He has made us members of a living body. He has ushered us once for all into the holy place. God has made his dwelling place with us, his people, through the Holy Spirit which has been given to us. And he has given us his word as well. We are members of a new covenant, not by birthright, but by the new birth that we experience in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not by genealogy, but by being grafted into the vine. We have become the covenant people of God and ministers of this new covenant. All of this because the good hand of the Lord our God was on us. So do you see his faithfulness in pursuing you and me? I ask you, are you rejoicing that your exile is over? Or are you cherishing some of what Babylon offered, choosing to linger there rather than run to Jesus? As a member of the covenant community, are you fully committed to covenant worship? Have you intended, like Ezra did, to set your heart on studying the word of God and on doing it and on teaching it? These are not themes in Ezra alone. These are themes of the new covenant. Go and tell. Make disciples of all nations. Teach them to obey all that I have commanded. Preserve the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. Guard the good teaching that I have entrusted you. Implore the world to be reconciled to God. God called Ezra and equipped him. Ezra believed God, set his heart on holiness, and lived with conviction. He took courage because the good hand of God was on him. So friends, children of God, redeemed by the precious blood of our Savior, heirs of the promise, members of Christ's community, and ministers of the new covenant, take courage, as Ezra did, for the hand of Yahweh, your God, is with you. He will surely fulfill his promise. He has called us. He will equip us. He has equipped us. Believe him. Trust him. Submit your will to his purpose. Renew your mind by his truth. Commit all your ways to him. Proclaim his name and embrace him with all your being, for he is worthy of the full worship of our hearts. He is faithful. He is surely faithful. He will surely keep the covenant. Let us pray.